G'day, beloved listeners. Welcome to LNL, coming to you from Gadigal Land. And uh, on this occasion, we're going to be looking at a couple of Australian literary journals. So let's make the program late night literature. I've watched many come and go over the decades. I can think of at least a dozen. But today we're going to discuss two that have had remarkable longevity and that can partly be attributed to the role played by their founding editors. Now, coincidentally, both stayed in their roles for 34 years. Mianjin was first published in 1940 in Brisbane before moving to Melbourne and its first editor was Clem Christensen, who I knew a little. Overland was born out of the communist realist writers group in Melbourne and was started by then-comrade Stephen Murray-Smith in 1954. And uh, Stephen was my mentor when I was a young Bolshevik. He also served as best man at my first wedding. Both editors passionate about their mission to develop a national literary culture and to advocate for, for progressive issues. But they had differing approaches and very different styles. But they provided a platform for many young aspiring writers who went on to even greater things. I remember, for example, taking a short story from an unpublished Melbourne author to Stephen and uh, persuading him to whack it in Overland. Whatever became of him, Peter Carey, I think his name was. Jim Davison was appointed the second editor of Mianjin back in 1974. But today he's here to talk about the dual biography of both the founding editors and the journals themselves. It's called Emperors in Lilliput and is published by Melbourne University Press. Welcome back to uh, to late night or late night literature, Jim. The last time we spoke, <laughs> we were discussing your problematic relationship with your dad. Oh yes. Well, there's nothing more to say about that. <clears throat> it's all been said. Yeah, well, and, um, let's move on to what hasn't been said. Yes. Why did you decide to write this sort of bifurcated biography? Um, because I thought that it it occurred to me that what was interesting about the two magazines was, was that they were so different in their style and the way they projected themselves, and yet both in a way came out of the University of Melbourne. So they were a kind of W. And I thought uh, since there was a certain congruency between them, particularly as they both worked, as you said, from a, a left position, um, that, that it would be instructive and would make a nice comparison and would be much more interesting than writing just a biography of one of them and uh, particularly as the most obvious one to write a biography of would have been Clem. Were you tempted to contrast Mianjin with Quadrant? No, I wasn't, but that wasn't um, from any, you know, rabid hostility to Quadrant. It was just that I knew the Melbourne scene so well and I thought that I could actually, uh, that, there, uh, that there was enough challenge in, in, in doing this um, and restricting it to Melbourne alone and I could draw on all sorts of things to give it infill in a way that I just couldn't with a Sydney publication. You make the point that Mianjin was pretty much a one-man band whilst Overland was a bit more of a, well, a collective. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, there were regular um, editorial meetings and Stephen was always a man who was involved in other projects Whereas with Clem, Mayangin really was pretty much the, the beginning and the end, apart from some creative writing he did. And uh, he would consult people and um, sometimes take their advice, sometimes not. But he preferred really to, to see people one-on-one. -on -one. 
Let's now take a closer look at Clem. A bit about your predecessor at Mianjin, if you please, Clem Christensen. Well, he um, was a Queenslander and um, he uh, was brought up first in Townsville and then in Brisbane, became a journalist and was also at one stage a wool classer. He, he, was, he, he was very much a knockabout in the first phase of his life, um, and, but also quite early began to write poetry. And so he had the idea, almost as a counterpoint to writing tourist propaganda for, for the Queensland government, very purple prose there, to, to shepherd the, the chaster prose, uh, sorry, the, the, uh, the chaster writing of poetry. And with three other poets, he decided to start a, a, a thing called Mianjin Papers. It was during the war. Paper was short. All sorts of things were short, and it was a, a kind of spirit of defiance uh, that the world of, of, of letters and of culture should not be completely disregarded just in the general emergency. And so the first Mianjin that came out in 1940 consisted of only eight pages with two poems by four different poets. When he gets home from uh, Europe he, and uh, established the mag, he marries Nina Maximov, Russian by birth. Yep, and she she had been in a, um, via Manchuria. She came to Australia with her family, and they first met when he was actually learning German, and uh, then uh, he uh, they they lived together. They married, and she she was a great stiffener and and encourager to him, and gave him a, a, a really solid rock because he had a rather mercurial temperament and often found personal relations difficult, partly because. Whereas I might have had a difficult father, he had a difficult father and an even more difficult mother. So that he, <laughs> he, he was really, um, he, he always expected more of people than, than, than they could possibly give him. And so he's always disappointed. So, um, so Nina, Nina is a steadying influence as well as um, an anchor in the university because eventually she became head of the Russian department at Melbourne University and these days would certainly have been a professor. I've, I've got to interpose here the fascinating trivial fact that Kerensky, having been ousted by the Bolsheviks, came to uh, to Melbourne hoping to get a job in the department but was passed over for Nina. Oh, yes, well, there you are. <laughs> well, and uh, just like that other story about Freud having, apl- having applied for a job at the Bendigo Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so apart from the vicissitudes during the war, the uh, which you've described up up to and including the shortage of paper, he didn't get much support from either the state government or the Queensland Uni, so he heads south. Yep. Uh, well, he's invited by the University of Melbourne. That there was a, a, an English um, vice chancellor, a man called Medley, who was v- very very enlightened and. Uh, and, and was aware that the, in a way that a lot of Australians were not, that the country would be quite different after the war. And so he invited uh, Mianjin down to Melbourne, uh, also in the hope of prodding uh, some academics into, into, into publishing uh, articles. Uh, but he, 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 he also appreciated that it was a general uh, magazine. In fact, as somebody has put it rather well, um, the uh, Mianjin and little magazines generally are doing their jobs if journalists find them too academic and academics find them too journalistic. <laughs> nice turn of phrase there, young man. Now, what were Clem's ambitions for Mianjin? Not only, I guess, to uh, or to make a, a great statement about Australia's surging talents, but also a bit of an international impression. 
I think that's right. And, uh, and for a time, in, um, it did, a lot of people in England respected it. Um, and uh, a survey from Princeton University in 1953 actually put it among the seven best English language literary magazines in the world. And he, did it, he was very anxious to get good international talent when he could. Uh, and to his credit, he wouldn't just accept anything. In fact, he rejected pieces by uh, Doris Lessing, for example, and so on, because he just didn't think they were up to scratch. But he did publish um, such people as Anais Nin and, Din and Dylan Thomas and Henry Miller and Brecht and Sartre and uh, Lukash, the uh, theorist, and, and, of course, Solzhenitsyn because Nina was able, from going to Russia, to actually make contact with uh, Solzhenitsyn and his circle. And so the first segment of the translation of August 1914, the, the last important novel of Solzhenitsyn, appeared in Mianjin. Now let's uh, switch to Stephen Murray-Smith, and as the hyphenated name suggests, he was a bit of a toff. He was a bit of a toff. I mean, he was born in two wreck. And he went to Geelong Grammar, as I once heard the, the BBC call it. Um, but the thing which really changed him was going to New Guinea during the war. Um, it toughened him up. It gave him a lasting taste, oddly enough, for really rough conditions, uh, which he reenacted every year when he went to Erith Island in the Bass Strait, which went quite against his obvious uh, sibaritic pr propensities in, in that he was a man of some enormity and very much given to the good life. What Stephen found in the army was ordinary Australians from whom he'd been isolated because, of course, Geelong Grammar was a boarding school. I think, I think boarders only pretty much in those days. Um, and he was struck by their authenticity because he didn't really have it. His father was involved in the Indian horse trade, uh, exporting Australian horses uh, to the Indian Army. And the father was away a great deal of the time. And Stephen, although he read voraciously like his mother, he didn't read much Australian stuff. It was all English stuff and so on. So that he really had an imperial childhood in Australia. I and, uh, had no – Stephen told me most of his uh, adventures and misadventures, mm. but I had no idea that he was previously a member of the Liberal Party and the Labor Party. That's right, and, and uh, in one year, and then he became a communist, and it was all done in one year. And it was <laughs> as he was repositioning himself after, after, coming out of, uh, after, uh, after coming back from the war. So Clem and he have something else in common because he too – marries a woman from Eastern Europe in Nita Bluthel, who I should I think... point out to the listener is John Bluthel's sister, the John being a wonderful Australian actor. And, yep. of course, the two of them did a tour of London and Prague before returning to Australia. Yes, and that's where Stephen is particularly um, in, in, interesting because Czechoslovakia for a while looked as though it was going to be a golden left-wing collaboration and then the communists had been given the Ministry for the Interior and control of the police so they were in a perfect position to stage a coup which is what they did in 1948 and it's at that moment that Stephen goes to Czechoslovakia just when everyone else is getting suspicious of, of Stalin and Czechoslovakia. So he was totally committed. You make the point that in the jungles of New Guinea working with often small patrols of only half a dozen, that this reaffirmed his belief in the idiocy of autocracy. Well, if we can broaden that to the idiocy of authority, because he'd had boarding school, um, um, he'd had the army, and eventually he was, as you know, 
uh, fed up with communism and, and left that too. And he later said, however did I put up with three lots of oppressive authority? How did Overland actually kick off? It had its genesis in the realist uh, writers, didn't it? That's right. And the realist writers were talking vaguely about um, uh, starting a magazine, but there were already sort of ideological rifts and so on. Um, And, of course, Stephen was more aware of getting readers rather than trying to um, proselytise and get working-class people to write. I mean, he was in favour of that too, but but not only that. And so there there was uh, some difference of opinion there. And then suddenly Judah Watton appeared and said that he had, through a, an anonymous donor, £15, which he could give Stephen to actually turn the realist writer, which Stephen was then editing, into a real journal, printed properly and so on. And so, and so Stephen took it, went out and registered the name Overland and said, oh, come on over here, boys, this is now where the action is. It's interesting that uh, the Communist Party was such a significant factor in Australian lit during that era. And I'm thinking of the Australasian Book Society, who also kicked in. Yes, well, that's right. And I think one of the things was that the Conservatives were still absolutely stuck to to Europe and to Anglophilia. And and this is the significance of Arthur Phillips' great um, essay, The Cultural Cringe. And there was a sense in which high culture was still pretty much informed by English attitudes. Whereas, of course, uh, the alignment of, of the working class and communism and with the mass of the Australian people was a natural fit. And, and that was why there was a, a real antagonism between the two all through the 50s. I, I've got a complete set of Overland going back to day one and uh, you look, riffle through the pages and there's the good and the great like, well, Nettie Palmer, Catherine Susanna Pritchard. What was Stephen's ambition for the journal? He, he felt that precisely because there was a cultural cringe and, and too many people were marking off instamatically from England, that what he wanted to do was to create an Australian culture or at least help create it. And that the best way of doing that was to include things from from high and low. And he'd said, for example, that Overland was a place where professors and slaughtermen, wharfies and politicians and the odd professional writer can all have a go. Uh, so he's really up, up to, to, to thickening this. And I might also say that later on when he began to produce books of his own, there was the same idea of helping to create a, an Australian cultural infrastructure. He produced a very good dictionary of Australian quotation. A terrific it's, book. It still yeah. reads well. Yeah. And he produced a, a, another interesting book in which he wasn't nearly as conservative as people expected him to be called Right Words, which was about um, English usage in Australia. It was the first time anybody had given such a guide. All the guides were, were in fact, English guides for England. He also, well, he and Ian were responsible for a very naughty book called Snatches and Lays. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, of course, censorship was, was, as you know, one of the great problems of the time because it was so uh, pervasive. And, um, I mean, one thinks, of course, of the famous case in 1964, I think it was, of Arthur Ryler banning uh, Mary McCarthy's The Group because it might offend his hypothetical teenage daughter. I thought I thought Arthur was absolutely right on that, I have to say, Jim. I'm talking to Jim that. Davison, one of the, the very few editors of Mianjin. So Stephen leaves the party in 58 over the execution of Imre in Hungary and, of course, at the time there were mass resignations from the ACP and those that didn't resign were often excommunicated. How did he manage to hold on to the editorship? Well, the thing was that, that he really was the proprietor of Overland. So 
the, the real question was whether he could hang on to the readership and hang on to the circulation. There was no actual problem about being dispossessed of overland. And I understand he'd already hidden that subscription card. Oh, yes, that's right. I mean, the, the moment he wrote his letter of resignation, that old trick of, uh, of, of pinching the subscription list, it's the kind of little magazine equivalent of withholding supply. So here's Overland and it continues not as a, a Communist Party organ but much more a magazine of the pluralist left. Yes, um, that's absolutely right. And, and, and he saw it as being still the voice of humanism, of radicalism and social protest. Did you know Stephen, uh, Jim? Oh, pretty well. Yes, I mean, um, you know, we, we saw um, every, each other a couple of months for about eight years and, and, and after. I, can, I still have this image of him puffing at his pipe, which I see with pleasure as on the cover of the book. <laughs> yes, well, I, I had a problem there because I wanted a photograph of the two of them together and the only one I could find had, had Clem looking very grumpy and, and Stephen looking rather uncomfortable given this grumpiness and I thought, that can't go on the cover. And I thought, what can I do? And I thought, pipes, that's the answer. That, that, <laughs> that sort of places them and so there they are. <laughs> I'm holding it up to the microphone so oh, everyone good on you, can Philip. see. So there's Stephen. Best publicity Bottom I've ever right, done. puffing away, and there's Clem up the top, puffing away, but Clem's pipe is a rather more sombre, sombre instrument. <laughs> so I'll look, uh, at it, I'll look at that picture more carefully when, <laughs> I, when I'm let out of this little cage. So Stephen by now is absolutely convinced that the Communist Party is not in tune with the Australian working class and time yep. to move on. While your book celebrates the journal's plural survival, it hasn't always been inevitable because the funding for journals was always extremely tight. I remember, of course, uh, Sir Robert, or then Bob Menzies, was never generous towards lefty journals. No. No, and in fact, at one stage, there, uh, there was a, the possibility that Mianjin's funding would be withdrawn um, and there was a very heated argument and... Uh, um, uh, it, 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 it was continued. But, but yes, it, it, it was always very, very dicey. And Clem put thousands of dollars of his own money into me, engine. Yes, he did. I mean, I didn't realise that really until I began, you know, writing this book. Quite, quite how much. I, I, I knew he'd put some in, but I had no idea of the extent of it. And he was only charging two bob per edition. Uh, well, of course, that, that uh, varied from... Uh, it had to go up. But what they were aware of... And Stephen was particularly aware of this, um, that uh, given the readership and particularly with Overland, with working class people and often retired people, every time you put up the price, you ran the risk of losing circulation. He was only drawing a salary for part of his time at Mianjin. Yes, only from 1966. How did he the, make ends meet? Well, I, I suppose the answer is Nina, uh, who was uh, head of the Russian department. And I'm sure she, she, she paid a lot of bills and she even made anonymous donations to Mianjin. Now, Melbourne University, although it uh, welcomed Mianjin initially, was sometimes a reluctant patron with, of course, as you point out, many academics not seeing the value of a journal celebrating such a, a crappy thing as Australian literature. That's right, and, or indeed Australian culture. 
Uh, uh, um, A very interesting indication of this mindset was that until probably around 1980, it was always expected that when you took sabbatical leave, which was the one year off in seven that permanent academics were entitled to in those days, you had to go overseas. And Lloyd Robson was writing a history of Tasmania. So he quite sensibly took overseas to mean Tasmania and he was censured for it, but still allowed to go in the end. I also suddenly remember it was a very difficult time for lefties, particular members of the Communist Party like uh, Stephen and Ian, to get visas. They weren't allowed to go to the US, were they? No, and in fact, oddly enough, the the thing which probably helped... um, Ian eventually get a visa to America was Dr. Knopfelmarker, his great adversary, because Ian was a man of great integrity, which people recognised. And so Knopfelmarker actually wrote a letter of support. Now, Melbourne University, a reluctant patron, was sought increasingly as a burden, but didn't want to be responsible for its demise. I think that's right, um, because it, it, it would be something that would uh, would not be forgotten, at least not for some considerable time. Talking to Jim Davison, and Jim, you've got to describe this extraordinary scene when the university bulldozed Clem's office. Oh, yes. Well, um, Clem, Clem was told that he would have to move from a particular building and he was shown various places which he deemed unsatisfactory and they probably were. And then suddenly on a Friday afternoon... Uh, he was told that the building that he was in had been sold to the wreckers and that um, he would have to be prepared to move out from Monday. So um, off he went to enjoy the weekend and there was a call on the Saturday saying the wreckers have started. You better get in there and move everything out. And so, um, and so he began. And, of course, uh, it was raining and, there, and a, lot, a lot of things got um, damaged and uh, people came and helped because the word went around and, and there he was fulminating against the university and, uh, and so on and so forth. So it was a great sort of tragic comic scene. What about Overland? It didn't have any financial support from the university and uh, no. didn't get any funds, as we've said, from uh, Menzies and co. Until about 1964. What changed then? Gradually, more and more people um, saw that it really did have merit, and that it wasn't, and that it wasn't communist. Um, so that, um, and and Stephen, unlike Clem, Stephen was a very good tactician, and he went along to a a seminar convened by the um, Australian Association for Cultural Freedom, the the Quadrant People, and said that it gave him considerable pride to be the representative of the only free. Enterprise Capitalist Magazine um, in Australia, <laughs> <laughs> and they all laughed, and they all and they all signed a, a um, petition, really, to uh, Menzies, saying, you know, that this is deplorable. Overland deserves funding. And we should point out that at the time, the CIA were funding conservative journals like uh, Encounter in the UK and Quadrant here. Yes, well, in the case of Encounter, I think one would have to concede that it was the best money the CIA ever spent. Then wrong comes this dangerous, well, worse than a Bolshevik in Gough Whitlam. Did that bring any relief to the journals? What it did was that it expanded the number of journals that were um, uh, subsidised and it expanded enormously the number of writers who received grants. In fact, in the, I think in 1973, the first full year of the Whitlam government, there were as many grants made to writers as there had been in the whole history of the Commonwealth Literary Fund since 1908. So what are the personal qualities these uh, different blokes brought to the role of literary editor? 
Well, I think they both had a sense that they were creating something and that, and that a magazine has to be shaped and that there is really, even, even if it seems a second order of creativity compared with writing a, a fine novel or a very good poem, it it's nevertheless is a, is a reality. And that, and that they had to have their antennae out to pick up on new trends and to try and bring them into some kind of uh, recognisable and readable shape. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. I mean, Clem often uh, saw the trend just before it surfaced and uh, he put out a theatre issue, for example, in 1964. And uh, it was very worthy. I'd forgotten that, but gosh, there, was, there weren't many Australian plays... No, there weren't. As you know, they only really started in the late 60s and that was part of the problem, that it, that it didn't really succeed because it was just a fraction too soon. Uh, so so that it, it was a dangerous business trying to sort of pick the trend. Well, that's almost eccentric to have a theatre issue at that point and that brings us to the editor's eccentricities. You, uh, Stephen was a bit of an eccentric, wasn't he? Oh, I think one would have to say that. I mean, <clears throat> there he was in his study, uh, starting a diary, and originally he started to write it with a quill because he was, as you know, a rather Dr Johnson kind of figure, an 18th century sort of figure. And I think he saw himself as a rather shop-soiled 18th century man in the 20th century. <laughs> I didn't know he wrote with a quill. Heavens Oh, he, he, he gave it away. He obviously found it not very practical, but then he started off doing that, though. <laughs> but there were times when he could be a bit of a nutter. For example, he was totally opposed to the metric system. That's right, yes. And, uh, and in fact, he, he actually formed an anti-metrication association. And, uh, and he was always uh, writing letters to the paper. In fact, I refer to that as editing the neighbourhood. Is it true that he sometimes uh, worked in the nude? Yes. Well, um, that's what he says in his diary, that uh, he, he, not only that, he would be in his, uh, in his study at the university working in the nude, according to the diary. Good heavens above. But Clem, not so much eccentric as obsessive? Oh, absolutely obsessive, yes. I mean, Mianjin was really three quarters of his life, I think. He expected so much from people, didn't he? Yes, he did. Did Clem ever have literary ambitions for himself? Oh, yes. I mean, he, 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 he wrote and published short stories and some of them were accepted elsewhere and he wrote poetry, and it's, it, it, you know, it, it, it's accomplished, quite good, but you couldn't really say that people would, would, ha would have to read it today. And he also tried to write uh, novels, but he could never quite bring them to conclusion. I didn't know that. Do any survive? Uh, well, the, uh, um, uh, well, probably the, the uh, novels do in manuscript in libraries, uh, but, but, but uh, he did publish a, a book called The Hand of Memory, uh, which included short stories and, uh, and poems. And then some other smaller, um, tiny little um, um, booklets of, of poems very late in life. And do you also think, very Do you think ones. there's a possibility that the competition between the mags and indeed the editors also contributed to their longevity? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that because there are too many other more direct factors. But, but certainly it, 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 it helped to. Uh, create some kind of antiphony, some kind of um, uh, uh, differentiation of where people could best submit material. You make the point that Clem got a bit paranoid about Overland snapping at his heels, but uh, Stephen was at least secretly supportive because they walked, worked together and to some extent supported each other. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, well, Stephen was quite deferential to Clem, I think. Partly Clem was about 15 years older. 
But it was more than that. I mean, uh, Clem, uh, um, when he came to the University of Melbourne, came roughly the same time as Stephen did, and they knew each other from that time. And Stephen said how an issue of Mianjin, a, a 1947 issue of Mianjin, which reached him when he was in England, really was a beacon and really uh, excited him and made him think that for the first time that perhaps editing a literary magazine would be a, a wonderful thing to do. And so there was a, a great respect from uh, on the part of uh, Stephen to Clem. And uh, he would do things to help Clem. I mean, one stage Clem had a, had a great row with a, a, a secretary who promptly gave notice and, and Stephen actually went and, and talked to them both and, and, and resolved it. And, and, and was aware that he was a bit of a meddler and, and felt that perhaps he shouldn't quite have done that. But never, he, he had generous impulses towards Clem. It's just now, that Clem was such a whinger. In <laughs> fact, I, 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 um, as you know, there's that word Jeremiah, which is about lamentations. And I thought, well, there really is another one that should be invented called a Clemiad, which is when you write a letter which is just full of complaint, with the result that sometimes a letter of Clem's of 1950 can be placed alongside a letter of Clem's of 1965 and read almost exactly the same way, with only names, place names and dates altered. Now, you're the editor that followed Clem, and you're very honest in the book about this uh, transition being acrimonious. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was difficult. It was partly that he could not actually let go. I mean, he appointed me uh, and then just couldn't let go. And so that created um, all kinds of problems. I think part of the problem was that he never really understood that when you, when you chose one course, it actually had ruled out now various other options. And when one looks at the whole story, and I now understand Clem's actions rather more fully as a result of having traced him uh, from the beginning, one can see that quite clearly. I might say too that in that chapter, which I wrote, which I wickedly call "Power Struggle in the Kremlin," um, I wrote it in the first person so that it's an honest account because I couldn't pretend to objectivity. I mean, I could pretend, I, I could claim, try to be fair and 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 truthful, but not obviously it's written from my point of view. Um, and I actually wrote that first to get it out of the way, so that I could then go back to the beginning of the story and give it openness. So the whole thing was a problem. <laughs> Let's move from times past and times present to uh, times future. Is there still a need for literary journals when we are more comfortable with in our own skin and the writers and poets of modern Australia? Or was this the golden age? Well, it was the golden age, but I think that we've, we still need things like this because the, the really important thing about these literary journals was that they brought all sorts of things together within a one set of covers. And, and under a good editorship, a magazine was able to give something of the flavour of the times. Um, and the trouble with our contemporary world is that it has become so segmented in all sorts of ways. I despair of it, really, because I can't, uh, with the collapse of community and the collapse of religion and common values and all that kind of stuff and increasing techno technocracy, I, I, I say at the end of the book, we, uh, Eisenhower talked of the uh, uh, military-industrial complex. Well, I talk about the technoid managerial complex because that's what we're now suffering from. So that in a way, r magazines, whether they exist in print or online, are very important counteractive things to this and help to... Uh, provide a place where people can still address a broader audience. Good on you, Jim. Well said. Jim Davison, author of, I'll hold it up to the microphone again, Emperors in Lilliput, published by, uh, and I hope not at all reluctantly, Melbourne University Press. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.